Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. In this episode, we'll discuss the first Sunday of Lent, which this year falls on February 21st. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. For our deep dive... We are diving deep into rainbows. The first reading that we have in Genesis is the story of God's rainbow, God's bow being put into the sky. And so we thought we'd dive deep into the many aspects of rainbows that we love. Emily, Mm -hmm. why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? That was brilliant. (laughs) Well done. Yes, Kay, in fact, there are so many (laughs) songs about rainbows and frequently what's on the other side. And while we, I should have looked up who that's by because a lot of us know it from Kermit, but it's not just Kermit. No, Kermit wrote that song. He said so in the movie. That was a very valiant attempt to keep a straight face. I'm not really sure why you bothered, (laughs) but you know, you tried and I could tell. You know... Yeah, it's always worth trying. (laughs) According to this, the Rainbow Connection song, the music and the lyrics were done by Paul Williams and Kenneth Asher. Rainbow Connections is one of many great songs. And so the science behind rainbows is pretty interesting. And a lot of us who maybe remember our high school or middle school science days might know this, but we'll, we'll go into it a little bit anyway. So... I frequently have talked about on this and our previous iteration of this podcast, the electromagnetic spectrum, which is all of the light, both visible to humans and invisible to humans. So stuff that's invisible to humans is like infrared light, x-rays, that sort of thing. And the stuff that's visible is what we might call white light when it's all together or the rainbow spectrum of light. So generally, light goes through space or air at the speed of light. I know, creative in naming things. But because it's both wavelength and particle, which is a whole quantum thing that I can't get into, but we can, if enough people are excited about it, get into it with someone else later. But the wavelengths slow down when they go through through things like water or glass or those sorts of things. And so that's when the short space of the visible light spectrum gets differentiated from each other. It breaks up the white light into all of the colors, which go from the largest wavelengths of red to the smallest wavelengths of violet. You can't see me making hand motions, but Kay can and can attest to the fact. They are really epic. I was going to say ridiculous, but I'll take epic. (laughs) So as they go through things that are not empty space or air, they kind of spread out. And so that's how we get to see red, orange, yellow, green, blue, depending on your perspective, indigo, violet, or Roy G. Biv, as many of us learned growing up. Indigo, however, has gone the way of Pluto, and they have admitted that they really just threw Indigo in there so that it was Roy G. Biv instead of Roy G. Whatever. It still is an actual color, and it is Mm -hmm. still... 
kind of awesome. Yes, yes. I like it. it is still actually. Also, I think you just explained why the sky is blue. I did, in fact, explain why the sky is blue and why the sky changes color at sunset a lot of the yes. time because there's more of the atmosphere that the sunlight has to go through. Indigo is still a color. It is still in the rainbow. It's just not one of the main colors the way that yes. maybe grew. Just like Pluto is still a planetoid, even if it's not a planet. Exactly. Yeah. Indigo is joining the ranks of wonderful colors such as turquoise and teal, magenta, lime green. green fuchsia. Yeah. So that's that's the science of the rainbow. And what's cool about how that connects specifically to this passage is... In order to make a rainbow, you need both sunlight and water. And so because this is happening in response to a flood, there's this intentionality with next time it rains, which is when we're most likely to experience a flood, then we'll get at least a mass, like a flash flood type thing. Then we'll get to see the rainbow as a reminder. So it's... The connection that is made biblically is also a scientific connection in this particular case because yeah, it was based on kind of the real lived experience of the people. But rainbows are not just about science. They also have other meanings, particularly there is a rainbow flag. I definitely experienced some controversy in seminary when I insisted that the rainbow flag was not the gay flag. Everybody who didn't know me thought I was homophobic because I refused to call it the gay flag. But, like, it was my flag, too, and I don't identify as gay. I identify as queer. So I called it the rainbow flag. And people who didn't know me were trying to straight-splain to me how to be a good ally to gay people. And everybody who knew me was laughing hysterically behind their hands. Nice. But the flag, the rainbow flag, actually first appeared with the word pace. I may be pronouncing that wrong. It's the Italian word for peace, P-A-C-E, with that word on it at a peace march in 1961. So the flag was inspired by similar multicolored flags that were used in demonstrations against nuclear weapons And a previous version had also, if you've seen the versions of the rainbow flag with a dove, apparently drawn by Pablo Picasso, according to Wikipedia, that's also an iteration of it. Yes. Wikipedia is actually pretty good. Wikipedia is pretty good because it actually, like, there's accountability. People will change the things if it's wrong. Yes. Yeah, no, there was a study a few years ago checking the accuracy of Wikipedia, and it pretty much stood up there with uh, most of the better encyclopedias in terms of how accurate it was. Yes. The most common variety of the rainbow flag has the colors purple, blue, azure, green, yellow, orange, and red, and is emblazoned with the word pache. It also became popular again in 2002, with the Pace da Tutti i Balconi, which is a terrible pronunciation of the Italian for peace from every balcony, which was actually a campaign started against the impending war that happened, nevertheless, because the United States. So it the rainbow flag has been a symbol of peace, which actually harkens back to what it's used for in Genesis when God uses it as a symbol of and as a reminder for God's own self not to wage 
violent, destructive, flooding war against humans, basically. It's not so much war yes. because none of us stand a chance against God, but the idea. The final part of the rainbow that I love is the symbol of the rainbow as a pride flag. And that iteration of the rainbow flag came about in 1978 when Gilbert Baker, who was an openly gay man and a drag queen in San Francisco, was urged by Harvey Milk, who was one of the first openly gay elected officials in this country, created it. He was an artist, and so he created the flag, and it has taken on a few different iterations since then. So a couple of the colors, there was a pink and a turquoise-ish teal. No, I think turquoise. There's, there are a couple colors that have since then been dropped from the flag, and the flag has added other colors, right? We When we think of, like, the Philadelphia flag that has a black stripe and a brown stripe, or... Right. The flag that we use during Pride Month as a pretty queer podcast has the rainbow, but then it also has a combination of the black and brown, representing and emphasizing the importance of black indigenous people of color, and the colors from the trans pride flag, which are light blue, light pink, and white. And so those groups, both like trans people broadly and black indigenous people of color broadly, and all of those intersections especially, are groups that frequently get whitewashed out of queer history, queer community, and so putting them in the flag is a way, is a reminder and an incentive to be intentional about how we are thinking about the broadness and the depth of the queer community. So, very, very cool things. Rainbows are amazing, and I will gladly talk to anybody about rainbows and how amazing they are for much longer than this, but I just like rainbows. Yay. The rainbow has also been a national flag, although it was a very tiny nation and no one technically lived there. But in <laughs> but in 2004, in response to the Australian government's refusal to recognize same-sex marriages, some mm. activists from Australia went to a small uninhabited island known as Cato Island in the territory of the Coral Sea Islands just outside of Australia, just off the coast of Australia. I don't know exactly how you'd put that when they're all islands. Anyway, (laughs) uh, not too far away from Australia. And planted a rainbow flag there and declared it the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands. Technically (laughs) speaking, it was a micronation because it was an uninhabited island. And that existed until 2017 when Australia finally allowed for same-sex marriages. (laughs) And... In case you're wondering, the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands was a constitutional monarchy, and the king was named Dale Parker Anderson. Hmm, cool. Just in terms of like activist choices and uh, moves in order to make a statement, I think founding a country is pretty awesome. So Yeah, I'm pretty impressed. That's a good way to, yeah. to go. I'm glad they did it on an uninhabited island, because otherwise that would well, be yeah. super problematic and same thing that white people and white gay people have been doing for ages, but good on them. Also, the capital of the country was a campsite that was called Heaven. (laughs) That's fantastic. I like it. Yes. If you want to know more, I know we've got quite a few links that we'll include in our description for more information on everything from the science of rainbows to Harvey Milk and Gilbert Baker 
and even a Wikipedia article on the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea Islands. It really is a shame that none of our listeners get to see my facial expressions. I'm just saying. <laughs> I make some good ones. That's always the case, though. It's not just this episode where that's a shame. It's it's always sad. That's true. Also, your humility remains astounding. <laughs> Our first reading for this episode comes from Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. After wiping out all of humanity except one family, God establishes a new covenant with Noah and all creation, with a symbol as a reminder, the rainbow. So one of the themes of this episode is the theme of covenant. Not to be confused with a convent where yeah. mostly nuns hang out and do work and things, but a covenant. Although I suppose they probably have covenants there. I think they would. It's true. A a brief, a brief intro to Covenant, which we'll get into in our next episode, but a covenant is like a pact or a promise. Um, I know when, I, when we do the words of institution, when they're the pre-scripted words of institution, we talk about Jesus saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for all people, for your own sins. The congregation I serve right now doesn't do words of institution that way. They do tell the story, say the words. So it's a little bit deeper and broader, but that also gives me the freedom instead of saying covenant, which not everybody understands, especially if they're not super Christian, we get to talk about the promise. So a covenant is kind of like yes. a mutual promise or a pact that people make. Kind of like when Katniss and Rue form an alliance. They make a pact in the Hunger Games to work together to defeat the rest of the careers, as they're called, the people with distinct advantages in this game of killing people to survive. Yeah. They even shake on it. Yes, actually, covenants do very often have a symbol, even if it's not always the rainbow. In verse 9, we read, God says, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. So I guess I assumed in Good Omens, whether we're talking about the book or the uh, miniseries, that Agnes Nutter's ability to see the future and interpret it in some fairly weird ways was from God. It certainly didn't seem to be from the devil, although we don't really get to meet Satan for any extensive period of time. But it wasn't really clearly established where that came from or why she in particular was given that gift, although she seemed to be pretty effective at it. And there was a sort of covenant with her family down to her last descendant that we meet, uh, Anathema Device, which, by the way, is an awesome name. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a fantastic name. Yeah. When she introduces herself, she always just says, it's a family name, <laughs> and moves on. The covenant with her family is that they will try to figure out her prophecies and eventually uh, one of them, Anathema, will have a role in the end of the world, hmm. which you can put the end of the world in quotation marks if you want. Uh, it would take way too long to explain exactly how it was and wasn't at the same time. I'll take your word for that. But Right. But the covenant is about her family and how they will interpret her prophecies and try to help when they can if they're about bad things. Although, of course, very often they don't manage to interpret them in time, and uh, it varies on whether or not they can have an effect. While that covenant definitely involved uh, Agnes herself and then also her descendants, 
as active participants. It certainly involved the rest of creation in that whole end of the world part, but not really as knowledgeable active participants who knew there was a covenant going on. So I guess it is slightly different from the covenant that God makes with all creation because all creation does know that. I mean, that's a, yeah, as far as we can tell. Yeah, a bit debatable, but yeah. And every covenant is different. That's part of the way covenants work is they're tailored to yes. who is making and doing them. Yes. When we got to verse 10, I was thinking about God talking about making the covenant with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. And it just gave me this vivid image of like the tent that they use, the tents that they used for camping in the Goblet of Fire, and then later on in Deathly Hallows, where particularly the movie shows this really funnily because it really looks like a teeny tiny tent, but like it's like a clown car. <laughs> They're all just like coming out, but because yeah. they have the undetectable extension charms on them, they fit. So I was thinking about that. Or also for the record, when you use the word camping in that context, specifically with those tents, I put the word camping in quotation marks every time that we talk about that, because if you're sleeping in a real bed. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not. No, No, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's air quote camping for any of the camping, almost any of the camping that they do in the Harry Potter books. Yeah. But I was thinking about that. And then I was also thinking it's also possible that, in fact, the Ark was a TARDIS because it's bigger on the inside. How else is it going to hold all of those animals? (laughs) In verse 14, when we hear God say, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, uh, we understand that the reminder has been set by God according to something that would have to happen before the flood that destroyed everything uh, again. And specifically according to something that God would be doing because the reminder is established in the verses after this to be for God. Mm-hmm. The, the reminder, you know, it also reminds us that's nice, but specifically the reminder is for God to not do this again, rather than mostly for us. Which is, first, a little scary when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Like, most of us did not contemplate this in Sunday school. And second, reminds me of what little I've been taught about how to set various kinds of reminders for people with ADHD. And when I say what little I've been taught, I mean that the medical community is still working on how to convey this kind of information in a useful fashion. Uh, Let's put it that way. But you want to attach Mm -hmm. a reminder to something that is both under your control and will naturally have to precede the thing you want to be reminded about. Not just something that, quote unquote, should happen or will probably happen, because those reminders usually fail at the worst time. So I I kind of like that God set the reminder according to something that has to happen before another flood could happen, because that means that it will be a reliable reminder for God. Although I would hope that God wouldn't need the reminder in the first place, both because, you know, God can presumably remember something that important, and also because I would hope that God wouldn't want to do that again in the first place. So Here I thought you were going to talk about the bow itself being so part of it. We think about the rainbow and we think, like, pretty arc in the sky. But also, the bow is actually, like, an archer's bow, a weapon. And so God is literally, like, hanging up their weapon and planning not to. Yes, I do like that, too. That's where I thought you were going to go with it. 
I like where you went with it, no. but I was like, hmm. okay. But I think it's important to say that because I don't we right this whole passage is filled with stuff that like what perspective have we been living with right that's part of why the summary is yeah when God after wiping out all of humanity except one family right like that's not how we think about Noah we think about like animals and rainbows and they decorate kids walls and all this stuff and then it's like actually yeah God was up to some pretty sketch stuff but God changed God's mind like we talked about with River yes I don't know that I've actually met a pastor who has decorated their child's nursery with Noah's Ark I, I would hope that pastors would have thought that story through a little more well and this is a chance for everyone to be thinking that story through a little bit more don't get me wrong I'm a fan of yeah. rainbows put the rainbows everywhere just know when you're talking sure. about Noah and the Ark it's a pretty sad story and it yeah. just gets worse later. <laughs> like, it's just not a great story. Oh, yeah. As you can imagine, being in a place where the only social activity that you have is with your family members, that can get a little weird. So, after the flood, things get a little weird. Yeah. And in, in verse 15, when God says, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, I was reminded of remembering... <laughs> And the huge pushback that happened after, so in Doctor Who, at least once per season, the companion has to be the one to save the day. Like, that's part of how Doctor Who is created. And Steve Moffat, I think, whoever was the director person during the Matt Smith years of Doctor Who, which is when I first got into it. So, like, I have an affection for those characters if not for the sexism and all of that stuff involved in the plot. The way that Amy Pond saves the day one of the seasons is literally by remembering. Like, she has to think real hard, and that's how she saves the day. Which is, like, disappointing in the realm of, like, an action-adventure type of show where there's creative and difficult ways that people save the day all the time, and then her saving the day on her wedding day is thinking real hard and remembering. On the other hand, having had a wedding day, being able to pull off thinking really hard and remembering (laughs) things on your wedding day, that's freaking impressive. Okay? (laughs) Like, let me tell you, I have a couple of vague mental snapshots from my wedding day, but thinking was not really something I was, like, doing a lot. I managed to remember to have lunch. That that was pretty much the... Yeah. That that was pretty much the extent of my thinking that day. So it still, yeah. That's fair. And I think Amy was like thrust into the wedding and all of the preparations had been made. And so it was like, all of a sudden she's getting married. And what even is well, yeah. yeah, by the way, folks, don't do that to people. <laughs> not not a it's, good plan. Just, a, no, just, I, I believe, if I, rem- if I remember right, I believe Amy knew it was coming. She just wasn't involved in the setup. But, and she, I don't think she knew the exact date and time. Yeah. But, it, it was still. a little complicated with, like, time and space and stuff, you know, because the TARDIS and the doctor. Yeah. But that is actually a trope. Like, in the New York Christmas wedding, there's a, like, impromptu wedding that, one of the people didn't know about ahead of time. And, and it ends up, like, all working out wonderfully. But it's just this, like, huh. Don't do that in real life. That's how you 
wind up, you know, in a Reddit post that goes around the world in five yeah. minutes. So it's yeah. a it's a movie trope. Keep it in the movies. Yeah. Also not necessary for the movies, but okay. <laughs> Anywho. Our second reading for this Sunday is First Peter chapter three, verses eighteen through twenty-two. Baptism connects all the baptized, both righteous and unrighteous, to Christ's death and resurrection. So one of the themes that came up for me in this passage was the dualism between flesh and spirit. We are not a fan of dualisms. We frequently call them hashtag false binary slash false binaries in this podcast because that is who we slash I are slash am. Thank you for destroying all of those various false binaries, Emily. I appreciate it. You're welcome. But I was thinking about this because there is a sense of physicality about humans and a sense of spirituality about humans. There's like something beyond the physical and something beyond the mental, right? Like it's neither of those can be categorized as like the complete human is entirely without any physical presence or the complete human is only physical presence and no other thoughts or emotions or spirituality. So there, this flesh spiritualism doesn't work because it's not accurate to who we are, that we are both flesh and spirit. And I was reminded because I just finished the fourth book of the Ember in the Ashes series and I will highly recommend it to like all of the people everywhere because I loved it. But also that means that this episode and probably the next episode are going to be a little bit heavy on (laughs) the Ember in the Ashes series. So you are forewarned. This is my shocked face. Yeah, this particular passage is 100% Ember in the Ashes for me. But (laughs) I was reminded in this flesh spirit dualism of... Elias, who is one of the three main characters, and at the beginning of the first book, the augurs, which are these, like, holy people who are able to see the future and, like, have foretellings and stuff. But Elias is promised by Cain, one of the augurs, freedom of body and soul. And he holds on to this and wonders about it, and it kind of pops up throughout the thing. But he's there's always like a way in which maybe this is what Cain was talking about. Or maybe this. Or maybe this. But there's this sense that like as long as one of those is still captive, his whole self. Like they can't. You can't have freedom of body and not freedom of soul. You can't have freedom of soul and not freedom of body. Right. And as we dive into the verses, in verse 18, we read... For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. And I was thinking about that, and there's this trope in a lot of like fantasy and good versus bad stories that the righteous folks, the good, the good guys, are the predictable ones. You can always count on them to do x y and z to do the right thing or to try to be to try to save the lives and so you can take that into account as karis frequently does who is the commandant in the amber in the ashes series see what i'm doing here 
she frequently takes into account, okay, what would a righteous person, what would someone who is good do if I did this? Okay, that'll draw them over here, and then I can go do this other completely horrid thing. She's basically the character with no conscience for all public encounters with her. So she's, there are like little places of where you can figure out what she's after, but it's a lot harder for her because she's not concerned about like betraying an entire, the capital city of the empire to these Karkans. Like she doesn't care how many people die as long as she is still alive and she can continue to gain power. So be righteous, even if it means being predictable. Cheers. Well, and just because you're righteous doesn't mean you have to be predictable. Like, you can do good things in unpredictable ways. Also true. And that's part of, like, what evolves in the story is, like, figuring out how to counter her means being unpredictable. Right. In verse 19, we hear, uh, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. So this is not explained all that well in this particular passage, but it sounds like it's a reference to what's called the harrowing of hell, uh, which is an ancient Christian idea which started in the Catholic Church and has a slightly different version in the Lutheran Church and not all Christians accept it. Like, this is not universal Christian doctrine And at it's all. not, like, super biblical. Like, it's not just that this is, like, a yeah, there are... reference. It's, like... There are no explicit references. Yeah, there are a bunch of verses like this that sound like they're referencing it, and so it was taught in the very early church, and now it's very much more of an optional thing. But we do reference it in the Apostles' Creed when we say, and Jesus descended into hell, or and Jesus descended to the dead. So there's a couple different versions Mm -hmm. of this. The first more specific version that is part, I believe, still part of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, is that when Jesus died on the cross and before Easter Sunday morning, he went to hell and got all of the righteous people from history who were there because they weren't Jewish or Christian and brought them out to to purgatory or heaven, depending on who you talk to, I guess. I believe for the Catholic Church, they would say purgatory. Lutherans don't do purgatory. Uh, Actually, pretty much no one but Catholics do purgatory, as far as I'm aware. Yep. And so the Lutheran version of this, uh, specifically from Martin Luther himself, uh, from the Formula of Concord, uh, I don't have the exact reference here. I think it was uh, Article 9. um, (laughs) I have no idea. Is that Jesus descended to hell after his burial, conquered the devil, destroyed the power of hell, and took from the devil all his power. It's not specific in how he does that, and I am perfectly happy to agree with this version of it, Mm -hmm. but Luther had different ideas about how the afterlife works, and so couldn't quite go to to the concept of Jesus actually going down to hell and, like, you know, rummaging through like it's a garage sale and finding all (laughs) the people that he wanted to bring out again. Yeah, I have a feeling Jesus would just, like, buy up the entire garage sale. Yeah, exactly. So there's some problematic theology here, and when you look at pieces of theology that come from the truly ancient church, the the very earliest days, some of them are pretty weird, (laughs) because they were still figuring things out. That's fine. But my question is, is that there are all of these movies that deal with either 
Jesus's uh, crucifixion and resurrection, or movies that deal with the afterlife, or movies that deal specifically with hell, or movies that deal with the end of the world. And pretty much all of them, all of these stories, whether they're books or movies or, or whatever, they ignore this concept almost entirely. Dante in the Inferno has one passing reference uh, from the tour guide Virgil. Milton uh, in Paradise Lost avoided it on purpose because of his religious views, which again would get complicated to explain. The movie The Passion of the Christ skips it, so does Good Omens, What Dreams May Come never even brings it up, although I think they actually pretty much deny it must have happened because it's said at one point that no one has ever been brought out of that version of hell, although that's not exactly a Christian afterlife. So I'm just kind of surprised that this concept doesn't show up more often in fiction or in uh, other types of religious literature, because it's not a universally held idea, but there's a lot of story and drama and potential in there, you know, <laughs> as a story to tell. And I, I feel like it's kind of weird that it's been this universally ignored. Yeah, which it's so. also particularly surprising given the, given the anti-Semitism built into, like, The Passion of the Christ, that it wouldn't be included because it's actually, like, a yeah. pretty anti-Semitic idea and pretty inaccurate base up for, like, Jewish belief practices, right? The idea of sending people to hell, A, hell is not, in Jesus' time, was not even a concept, right? That's not how it works. That's not a Jewish concept. That's a very, like, Christian, developed later kind of concept. And to, like, imply... And got super popular in the Middle Ages, which, you know, anytime something got super popular in the Middle Ages or or that general mm-hmm. area of history, maybe you want to take a second look at it and ask yourself, was this really a good idea? Right. Was this actually just an to provide an excuse to harm Jewish people? If so, maybe. Or, you know, go fight wars that you really wanted to fight, but maybe weren't actually all that exactly. helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So I am not disappointed that this is not well, a thing. Yes. I don't know that disappointed is the word, but surprised. Like, I'm not, because yeah. goodness knows, given how fiction has dealt with Christianity in a completely unknowledgeable way in the past, I am not disappointed that this hasn't been right. dealt Particularly, with. Particularly, like, the last series is, the word I was using. is very much oh, not. Oh, for crying out loud. Gr- yes. Is really terrible, and, like, it exists. So why does this not exist? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I used the word surprised and not disappointed on purpose. But I could see some really, truly interesting fiction coming from, like, you know, people who have actual talent uh, and are willing to do some research from it. But still, I would have very high standards. So I will just, like, yeah, I just want to make sure people know that, like, the concept is pretty anti-Semitic and not in line with Jewish teaching or practice. Right. In verse 20... We hear, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And I guess this had never really occurred to me before, and it's kind of weird, I guess, that it comes to me when we're reading Paul and not when we're reading Genesis. But I have to wonder, did Noah and his family have survivor's Mm. guilt after the flood? Like, I mean, Noah clearly knew what was going to happen, but it's a little less clear on whether or not his family members knew everything that was going to happen and that's got to be major trauma like i really hope one of them had some innate talent for counseling (laughs) because wow they were going to need it yeah 
at any time just a few people are saved, that sort of thing tends to happen to some of them, whether we're talking about real life tragedies and disasters, or whether we're talking about, you know, zombie movies or apocalyptic fiction like The Stand. Mm -hmm. Some of them are going to have survivor's guilt. That happens. So, wow, that must have, yeah, as a concept. Yeah, I would imagine that they had survivor's guilt because... Yeah. The next verse, verse 21, we read, And baptism, which this prefigured, this being the flood, now saves you. And to be clear, there's this, again, reinterpreting scripture or prophetic acts thing that is happening, right? Going back into something and saying, oh, this is what it is. To The flood is not a prefiguring of baptism. The flood is the flood. Baptism is yeah. baptism. Once again, we are reminded yep. that the epistles are written by our colleagues, not by God. And so we get to have conversations about that and say, mm, I think your theology is kind of problematic. Yeah, baptism hasn't committed genocide i'm just saying well okay people have committed genocide in the name of baptism which is also wrong yeah but the act of baptism itself i don't know of anyone who was baptized yeah you're not actually supposed to die it's a symbolic that's yes there's a difference yeah but i was thinking about that and the ways that the author in this particular verse and passage is reinterpreting scripture and prophetic acts and is finding a new meaning in it which is similar to a sky beyond the storm the fourth and final book in the ember in the ashes series there's a lot of prophecies and they call them foretellings in the whole series but particularly it comes to head in a sky beyond the storm and there are different prophecies and then as one is told one foretelling happens It's like, okay, well, who's that and who's that? Like, who is the ghost? Is the ghost that one or is the ghost somebody else? And so it's interpreted in one way and then more information comes about and it's interpreted in another, which is unlike this because they weren't in, the flood was not interpreted poorly before, as I just mentioned. But it is this like, how do we interpret and reinterpret things? And when do we reinterpret with new information? And when do we reinterpret with new prejudice? Like... There's a difference. because that happens. Mm -hmm. The gospel reading for this episode is from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. Jesus is baptized by John the baptizer in the Jordan River, which pleases God. Then Jesus spends 40 days being tempted in the wilderness before beginning a life of ministry after John's arrest. One of the themes that came up for me is kind of exposition or setting the, setting the setting, setting the stage for this story. <laughs> you are setting yeah, the setting. You know. Yes, absolutely. Um, this is, of course, the beginning of Mark. It's the it's the second half of the first 15 verses of Mark. And so we're getting kind of the exposition of the story, if you think about, like, setting, inciting incident, climax, resolution type of story arc that is taught in middle school language arts. Slash, that's where yes. I learned it. So then I was thinking about it and thinking about, like, the different examples of that in literature. Tolkien does way too much of exposition, setting the stage, story building in Lord of the Rings. According and the to you. Um, I think according to a lot of people, like he goes overboard yes. on 
three pages on a tree. It, it is, however, a pretty awesome like tree. it's it's really beautiful, and you and like he yes. creates a world that people can imagine, be, and yes. like nothing is left up to chance or question about it. Oh no! So that's like at one end of the spectrum of how much exposition. And Mark does, like, barely enough exposition, so he's at the other. But Mark was the first gospel that was really collected into a gospel. And so Mark very much is, like, a bare-bones gospel. It's immediate actions. It's from one to the other. Jesus is superhuman. There's not a ton of, like, theological development like there is for Matthew it's the truck driver's gospel. And Luke and John. They go from one place to the next to the next to the next, and there's no breaks in the middle. Huh. I had never heard it called that before. So this this passage just it was reminding me of the like the spectrum that there is and the difference that there is where like Tolkien's on one end, way off the edge, and Mark is like barely hanging on at the other edge. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, like, others. There is a reason why we hear a lot from the Gospel of John in the year where we're trying to focus on the Gospel Mm -hmm. of Mark, because there's not a lot in the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, and John is very much more about the, like, here's the full story and the theological interpretation of all the things. I think, like, that's how I think about Mark and John. It's like, Mark is very, like, to the point. Jesus is very, very much a human. And John is like flowy and poetic and discursive and jesus is very very much divine and so they like hold each other in balance yes i have occasionally called the gospel of john highfalutin which is one of my (laughs) favorite adjectives that's fantastic in verse 10 we hear and just as he jesus was coming out was coming up out of the water and Okay, there are plenty of fictional references to people coming up out of the water in various places. The immediate one that comes to mind for me will probably always be the 1995 BBC Pride and Prejudice miniseries, where Colin first comes up out of the pond, uh, and that created something of a cultural moment for anyone who had seen that miniseries. (laughs) Which I find interesting, because Colin Firth is not traditionally attractive in the way that like pop culture likes men to look but he is more historically attractive in the vein of like the way that men have been found attractive by women mostly uh in the historical sense the way we understand how attractiveness works changes over the years what is attractive one year might not be attractive the Mm -hmm. next year but it used to change a lot slower and historically speaking men like Colin Firth were seen as attractive for quite a while for several hundred years uh, which you can see in any historical artwork in like Europe so the UK yes I I would definitely say western civilization Uh, the the very strong jaw uh, and the height and the broad shoulders all of those were very standard in white centric okay uh, I was like I feel like this is a continent specific type that makes more sense okay gotcha i um having never seen the 1995 bbc pride and prejudice miniseries did not think of colin firth in the least bit for this verse but i also thought of this verse and the two examples that i thought of were coming out of the matrix like when neo in particular comes out of the matrix for the first time and it's like a coming yes. up out of this liquid, but also like there's all these things attached and they have to be like let go. and Or coming up out of the regeneration gel for Cylons in Battlestar Galactica. 
because that's the other thing that I'm like really deep into in this particular moment. Yes. The regeneration gel is kind of more gooey. I guess the matrix stuff is too versus water. Also, I would hope that your baptism doesn't seem like you're being flushed out of a toilet, which is what the matrix experience that is always eventually makes me think of. what happens. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. But the regeneration is like pretty accurate because literally they have died and <laughs> being regenerated. Yeah. That's fair. Or like Bacta in Star Wars. The the blue gel from Star Wars that like Luke gets healed in. Oh. Sure. Yeah. We don't actually see him come out of it, but it's a very similar I kind do of remember thing. him wearing a diaper. That's what it looked like. Yeah, that was also unfortunate. In verse twelve, we read that the spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And that reminded me of the Mandalorian where uh, the Mandalorian is searching. The Mandalorian is searching for the Jedi for the sake of Grogu, who is a Jedi and needs to be returned, like reconnected to Grogu's people. And in the search for the Jedi for Grogu, the Mandalorian is very much sent driven into the wilderness, well, the wilderness planet, by a spirit of care and concern and compassion for Grogu. And then in verse 15, we hear that Jesus went around saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. And I read this verse and in the back of my head, I'm hearing a chorus of, the prince is having a ball, the prince is having a ball from the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella, preferably the Brandy and Whitney which Houston version, which I believe is better. Yeah. I don't know that I've actually seen other versions, aside from a staged version that a friend of mine was in when we were like 13. Details, details. That version is awesome. But it it is a production of the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella, which is different than the Disney version. And I would definitely suggest you find a version, but the Brandy Whitney Houston version is generally available on YouTube to watch for free, which is nice. Uh, although I suppose biblically, it's probably less of a ball and more of a banquet that God is throwing. Like most people can eat, not everybody can dance. So I guess that's more welcoming. Yes. And food. Yay, food. Yes. Always. Food is tasty. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for Lent 2. This podcast has been produced by us, Emily Ewing and Kay Roloff. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at N-E-R-D-S-A-T-C-H-U-R-C-H, Nerds at Church. Or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you appreciate what we do or want to get actual transcripts of the podcast episodes, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. We hope Patreon can help us get our episodes transcribed for those who need or prefer that, though if you want to help us with transcripts, let us know via email or social media. As the ancient Christians said, Pox Vobiscum. Vobiscum.